Sue. It's Kiki here. And Alex. On this episode, we look at Wishlist, the story of how a troubled, disillusioned boy learns to live from a girl who's going to die. A piece that is mid-development. We chat with writer Charlie Eglinton and Andy Barnes, one half of the show's producers, Perfect Pitch. Andy gives us an exclusive look into their workshopping process and Perfect Pitch's approach to supporting writers. And Charlie lets us into the process of writing an original musical story inspired by personal experience. Welcome to Making Making a a Musical, musical, the future of British British Musical musical Theatre. So Kiki, today we are welcoming a great friend of the podcast. Yeah, we're really excited to be featuring a new musical called Wishlist, um, written by Charlie Eglinton. Hi, Charlie. Hello. If you may know about the podcast, we actually had a previous iteration pre-pandemic called All That Scratch, which was a live version that we did in the studio at the other palace. Um, And Charlie was on All That Scratch. So it's really exciting to invite her back with a new piece. Pleasure. And we also have Andy Barnes, um, who has come on as the developmental producer for this piece. So welcome, Andy, as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about this piece and how... I guess this relationship started and continues. So without any spoilers, Wish List is the story of a 17-year-old boy called Bruno who has his therapy stopped because his mum can't afford the sessions anymore. And for reasons that you'll find out in the piece, he doesn't use his mobile. So what do you do? You go to the self-help section in your charity shop because of course you do. And there he finds a book bound to a Polaroid camera. And the book is a handwritten message from a 17-year-old girl called Alyssa. And Alyssa has six months to live because she is dying of leukemia. And this book is her wish list. And it is all the things she wants to do before she dies, but obviously cannot. So she has donated it for some stranger to take on her list and fulfill the items in the wish list. And using the Polaroid camera that's attached to the book, take a selfie for every single item, stick it in the book and then return it back to her hospice at the end so that she gets to see all these different places and she feels like she came on the journey of her lifetime with this stranger. So Bruno picks up the book and he thinks, no. But then he sees a vision of Elissa in his head and this vision doesn't leave him alone. So he this in, this like imagined embodiment of Elissa comes on the journey with him around the world. And he may or may not fall in love with her. So the whole thing is a race against time of will he make it back in time to see her. So that, that, that's kind of the plot. And I'm not going to say any more than that. But Immediately, yeah. I want to buy a ticket <laughs> to find out what happens. Because presumably it doesn't all go to plan. I'm saying nothing. <laughs> oh, I like it. Yeah. Oh, we gets the little teaser. I like <laughs> it. So then how did this relationship with, between you two start? Because I presume there was some, at some stage of writing this, it was shared or submitted. What then, I guess, was attractive or what resonated from, to the, sh- from the show to you? So, yeah, we run um, Perfect Pitch, which is... Uh, I guess you call it a developmental organisation, but it, it's basically a theatre company that develops new shows. Um, and we've we've always run an open submissions process um, for years, and we do it, I think, for about three months on and three months off, something like that. Wendy does it, which is why I'm slightly vague. Um, but we uh, th- this got submitted, um, I think, actually through Charlie's agent. Um, I think they were discussing projects and how to move stuff forward, and... and um, John, her agent, knows us very well from previous 
collaborations and so on. And I think he thought this would be a good fit for us. Mm. Um, and Wendy reads them all first and said, uh, there's something in this, you should have a read of it. I'm not gonna tell you anything about it. I'm not gonna tell you what it did for me or didn't do for me, but you should read it. Because we'd always agreed that we both have to love a project because so much time and effort and you know they become all consuming it goes into it so we were kind of like okay so i thought i'll read it in the next few days and then weirdly i found myself at about half 11 i'd come back from somewhere sitting on the sofa at home and just sort of thought i'll just do it have a little skim now and then i started reading it and about an hour later i think it took me about an hour to read it it's it's a one-act piece um I was sobbing in the corner of my lounge in the middle of the night with no one to talk to just because it's kind of, it's, it's, but not all sad tears. I should say like it it is a, it's a very uplifting spirited, inspirational, motivational kind of piece that, that just resonated. And I kind of figure, you know, I'm quite a cynical 50 plus year man that, that kind of has seen quite a lot of the world, both good and bad. And I kind of thought, well, if it can touch me, it's going to touch a lot of other people. So we and and I knew Charlie from from when she was about 16. (laughs) Charlie was was brave enough or crazy enough, however you want to look at it, to kind of, you know, just literally put herself out there and go, I write musicals. And, you know, was throwing everything out. It was my first one ever. And I thought it'd be a good idea to try and tell you on. on the spot what it was and I think I gave probably the worst pitch I could have ever pitched <laughs> in my life well <laughs> I remembered it so that's you know maybe, it was, something. maybe it was good yeah <laughs> but it was it was just interesting because I think you know knowing seeing somebody progress over five six seven years of their work and and every now and then the name pops up and you're like oh I wonder what they're up to and you see them they've got a song in whatever or they've got a an, an evening of their work or whatever it is that that sort of reminds you of their their being and then when this came through I was like oh I know Charlie and I remember some of the stuff and the the show that she pitched wasn't sort of really for us but but you know it was good um and 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 I think that's really important to say that like you know everyone talks about rejection it's not always rejection it's just about a misalignment you don't always necessarily resonate with something or you don't have the capacity or whatever it might be that's for the wider the wider writing like public. Never say never, is it? Yeah, like, it, no, it is definitely never say never because you don't you just don't know what's around the corner. But but it was it was wonderful to see both the progression in the writing, um, but also you know just something that straight away went yeah I did, I want to I want to see this and I could picture it, which is uh, the all the shows that we've had any success with you can see in your head. And I think that's that's part of the buy-in for us is you kind of go, okay, I've got an idea of how this could work. And obviously it's for a director to manifest that or their version of that. But but if you can see it in a way, then you know that it has something that, you know, hopefully other people will want to see. And Charlie, does it work that way for you when you have the idea and you're developing the idea? Is that is it a visual idea? How do you how do you take that from inside your head and actually put it down on paper? Um, I think I'm I'm naturally quite a visual person and like I tend to certainly with like some of my earlier shows I'd always like draw out the characters so that I could like literally see them in my head and yeah I think because this show literally goes all around the world not going to say where but like it literally goes all around the world so it's like I could and I was researching these really niche places in the world but they're like really stunning and beautiful places and it's just like it's giving that escapism on stage and like these sort of like breathtaking 
places that I could see in my head and that I could see translating on the stage because like that's just like whatever scale that I'm working on I'm always 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 about providing escapism and like a spectacle on stage even if it is a really paired back cast I think that's really interesting because again Charlie and I go way back as well maybe not when you were 16 but maybe not long afterward yeah (laughs) and your previous work and other work around this you're right you potentially tend to work on a, on a big scale but i guess the question is uh, for wishlist what attracted you to this story what was the actual inception that you said this is the story i want to tell it's kind of a threefold thing because it sort of really began early last year so 2022 um when i went to go and see the musical thrill me by stephen Dorganoff at german street theater and I mean, thematically, nothing like it. But as in, I went to go and see this and I was quite literally thrilled. It was it, it was amazing because it is just a two-hander, 80 minutes, straight through, no interval. And it was just like one of the most in, intense and tense pieces of theatre I have ever seen because you've just got two characters on stage playing off each other. And it's all the twists and turns of their chemistry and their dynamics and it was just, I was on the edge of my seat and I, I was, it blew me away because I'm just like, this is amazing that you can create so much drama from just two people and basically no set. And so I was really fascinated by that challenge because I do have a tendency to write really big pieces for really big hmm. casts and producers hate me for that. But it was just, I wanted that challenge of like, could I write something that small and that intimate and make it work? So that, that was one thing. And then the second thing was that I, since I was about eight years old, have had this gorgeous little toy poodle called Tilly. And she literally has seen me through primary school, secondary school, A-levels, first job, and about 10 musicals. I mean, she, she, she saw it all. And we, I knew I was sort of losing her last year and she had some sort of cancer. And I was like, I sort of, cause she was essentially the closest thing I had to a best friend. And I needed sort of a way to A, cope with that, but also find a way to sort of like honor her, if you like. And so I sort of wanted to do something about that. And actually, just like on a tangent, um, she died on the 29th of December last year, just gone. Wendy emailed me on the 30th of December to say we're interested oh, wow. in discussing further. And I was just like, well, uh-huh. there we go. I didn't know that. <laughs> that feels like so a sign just from like, the universe. It was just like a really poignant thing the day after us. I was sort of like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it was just a really like full circle, really poignant moment. Um, and I guess the third thing is that I've always been attracted towards trying to write a piece about mental health, and that like it does play a huge part in this show. Um, and it's just because I think it's like it's such a huge issue, certainly for my, I mean, for every generation, but I think particularly for my generation. And it's it's everywhere, but it's invisible. And I think it's just trying to again find a platform for examining that and trying to find a way to work through that and just like a show that would speak to people of my generation I mean of every generation but like certainly people of my generation and so I sort of like I came up with this thought that was like well maybe by helping others we can heal a little bit of ourselves and that's really the message of wishlist so like without giving too much away by taking on this wishlist Bruno who is broken and he's damaged manages to sort of heal his own problems and like fight his own demons by doing this for this complete stranger that he owes nothing to. But by helping her, he heals himself. And I just thought that was a message that 
I think a lot of people, certainly myself, could resonate with. What influences have you used as you've been writing the piece? Uh, what, what influences do you draw from? Um, do you mean like sort of pop culturally or...? Yeah, anything. What, what, what kind of fills your cup and makes you want to go and write the next day? Um, well, I guess Thrill Me was a big influence in terms of just like the structure of it. But I think like one of my favourite films, it, it's going to seem weird to say this, but like one of my favourite films ever is uh, the McDonough film In Bruges. And I think one of the reasons I love it so much is because of its story. And it is about a broken, damaged man who is essentially like he's sinned and he's done wrong. But over the course of the film, he manages to find redemption through doing good and it's just like it's a really lovely sort of like redemption I, I love redemption arc stories they're great um and it just yeah it just and also just because of the Irish humor I mean I've got Irish lineage in me and there's just something about sort of Irish text and Irish humor that just really really appeals to me so the whole thing begins in Dublin but then he takes off from Dublin all around the world to come back again um so yeah I think it's like it's a it's a it's an Irish sort of story, and but it does have that sort of British humour in there as well. I think what's really interesting about it is is it's very real. So you're you're looking at characters that often in musicals are very highly you know <laughs> excitable, over the top, like almost caricatures. caricatures yeah. yeah, and and these are real people experiencing real life, real world issues that we all face in different ways and different times in our lives but you kind of relate to them because of that um so the, the escapism is slightly different it's a bit like watching normal people or something that's not not kind of it's filmic and it's tv in, in its own way but it feels a little bit more you're behind the scenes as well and it, and this feels like that you're seeing you're experiencing and and feeling the whole journey with them as opposed to watching them and i think that's what st stood out for us is that you could feel the the depth of these real people. Um, well, I tried to write it in a very naturalistic way. Mm. So, like, as if, like, a teenage... Because I, I, I have a teenage sister, and obviously I'm, like, sort of in the lexicon myself. So, like, I was trying to just write it in a very colloquial way yeah. so that it was accessible for and like, I think a that's modern what, audience. What's interesting, and, we, you know, we've always wanted to do contemporary work. Most of the shows that we've done have been have been relevant to now for whatever reason or whatever message they give or, or the reason behind them. And I think this is similar, you know, you touched on mental health, but there's so much more as well that it kind of does just about existing in a, in a tricky world. And, you know, the complexities of having money, not having money, having, you know, the ability to travel. But, but I think what I took away from it, and we did a workshop recently, which is why it feels very v sort of visual and, and alive to us rather than just on the page, you know, you, you come out sort of going, God, you only get one crack at this. Do you know what I mean? And actually, am I living it to the full? Mm. Am I doing everything I want to do? Am I, am well, I maximizing my time on the planet? You know, yeah. and, and you realize, you know, it could be short and, and therefore, mm. you know, maximize it where you can. And I think that's a really positive message through what could be a really sad tale. And, but actually you don't come out feeling sad, which, which is great because you've, you've, you know, pulled at those, heartstrings a little bit but without you sort of coming out going oh my god I need a beer <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean it's kind of it's, I think it's not bleak no it's definitely not bleak 
I think the joy of the form of musical theatre, though, is you're able to reach those emotional connections potentially easier than a straight play is through the music. And Charlie, you have such a unique sound and style into your music. And I think it ties really nicely into some of the music you've provided us to listen to today. So we first have No One Can Fix Me. Do you want to give, a, I guess, a little bit of a teaser context of where it sits in the show? Um, so this is the opening number and off the back of the workshop that we've just done, which was amazing and so, so helpful. Um, we've sort of like now interspersed dialogue through it. So that's not on the track, but it essentially, it covers Bruno going into what will be his last therapy session, finding out that he is not going to have any more therapy sessions because his mum has just gone behind his back and cancelled them. And he is livid about that. So now he's just in this tailspin of like, great, what do I do now? And so that's why he sings this whole thing about like, no one can fix me then, can they? And then eventually comes to the conclusion of like, well, if nobody else is going to fix me, then I'm going to have to fix me and takes himself off to the charity shop. And the rest is history for him.
what you feel inside so only i can fix me we've spoken a lot about the inception of the piece and, and what what the storyline is be really good to get into the nitty-gritty charlie of what your writing process looks like particularly as you know a one-man band in that room or wherever you like to write what does it look like I mean, it's pretty much the same for every show I do. I sort of, I'll get little cards out and I'll sort of write the big overarching plot points and I'll sort of lay them out on the table. And then from there, I can plot where songs make sense to go. Sometimes that changes, but like, it just gives you an overview of like, if you do that, you'd be like, oh, there's a massive gap there. And it just, it's a, it's a fairly robust way of actually plotting it so that you're not just like, just going straight in writing and going like, I don't know what's wrong. There's something wrong, but I don't know what's wrong. Like this just like visually, you can see it and you can just fix it quite easily. So then from there, I never write any music at the point of like, once that's all written out, I'll always write the book first, just because I think that can then inform certain choices about the music. So like with Wishlist, I tried to add like just a teeny tiny influence of like wherever they go around the world. So like I want to give the first, like the two songs that I'm sharing today, you don't hear that because that's just, it's just like, it's pretty standard. Like, I mean, Alyssa and Bruno have slightly different sounds. Like she's much more ethereal and airy and sort of synth based. And he's much more sort of like heavy rhythm section, like guitar, piano, drum, bass sort of stuff. So they do have like different timbre and instrumentation, but like in terms of where they go, like you'll have like they may or may not go to Spain. So there's like a sort of more like Spanish guitar sort of like sound in one of the songs, sort of thing, like just just stuff like that. Um, but that's informed by where they actually go by writing the book, and some of the like some of the places they went completely changed over certain drafts. So I'll always write the book first. And then I'll try and write the songs in chronological order just because then it's just really helpful for like if you're reprising certain motifs that you're bringing back later on, you've already written it up top. It just that, that makes most sense to me in my head, I think. Um, so yeah, that and then I just like just reread, reread and I'm pretty good at being my own dramaturg and telling myself that that's rubbish and I either write that song again or like just totally cut that, that doesn't work. So you just, yeah, you've got to be, when it's just you writing, you have to be a pretty ruthless editor on yourself. So that's pretty much my process, I guess, for developing anything, but certainly with this as well. And when you add the layer then of putting it in a room, getting people to say your words, sing your songs, I am. you get so much come up. You see what works, what doesn't yeah. work. Does that fit? Is that the right sound? So having this workshop, obviously, that you've just done with Andy and Perfect Pitch, what's come up? Has there been a lot of rewrites? Has it been tweaks? Yeah, quite a lot. I mean, I literally cannot tell you how invaluable that workshop has been, even just to like my own. I mean, I've already been doing rewrites of other shows and I've been implementing things from that workshop into that. I mean, like it's the most stupidly basic thing, but just reading it aloud, it's like you've not got any dialogue integrated into these songs. They are just literally dialogue song, dialogue song, dialogue song. And actually a lot of the week was, well, the, the top end of the week was actually integrating dialogue either before or after into the song so it just it 
it makes it so much slicker because it's not like suddenly the, the songs are not just pause points anymore. Like they are moving the story forwards. And I mean, obviously where it made sense to do it, but there were so many places where it did make sense to do it. And it just made the whole thing flow so much better so that it tidied up that and it cuts down your runtime massively by doing that. Um, but then that allowed more space for new things. So I was every night going home in that week and like manically typing up like massive new sections to then try out in the room the next morning, which was great. Like I absolutely thrived on that. And it was just so much fun just seeing this like, I just wrote this last night and now we're doing it in the room. This is great. <laughs> and um, and yeah, I mean, I think there's still like lots to sort of like work out and tweak but I think on the whole the sort of like the new things that we've added and the things that we've tidied up in that room have just been invaluable for the piece and I'm yeah I'm really happy with what we actually managed to get done in just four days I think I think every every workshop process is different and every writer's ability to workshop is different you know and and what you take away from it you know is is received differently so you know charlie's a good example of of someone who's very in it in the moment can see how to fix something potentially or or at least put something else on the table to play with or offer um others need a moment and they they hear everything and they take it all on board and then they they need to go away and work out how to do it or what to do and that could be two three weeks later so we try and fit the process around what what's needed at that moment in time and i think you know we we also you also need to get to know each other you know it's it's dating you mm. know initially and before you get into a proper relationship as a producer writer you know you kind of want to work out how you tick and what makes them tick and and do we get on and do they talk to us nicely and vice versa <laughs> and you know all of those things that you you sort of just want if you're going to go on a long journey with somebody you want to make sure you've got the right passenger in your car right <laughs> so you're you're kind of um we look at that as part of certainly an initial workshop and 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 literally this this one we've just done was was let's just hear it out loud because particularly when it's one person um and they you know they've done their own demos and they've brought literally everything to the table what does it sound like when you take the charlie out of it and what 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 does that give the piece does it feel better does it feel like it's lacking something now cuz obviously this is a personal ish story there's stuff that that has come from within so when you take that out and you start putting it into other people who may not have that resonance with the material what does that sound like so our first you know motivation with that was just to hear it and see and actually the fact that then charlie could make those changes and didn't need to go away and think about it or 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 you know spend a lot of time thinking about it um you know you can just try stuff out and put stuff out there and actually i think our job within that is is to be the dramaturg to to her and and the director can kind of come up with, with suggestions and ideas and throw things around the room and then you know their job then is to go i love that idea or, or i don't get that one but let's run with this you know and kind of and it's all about throwing the ideas out and and then what comes out of it at the end is is then back to charlie and the writer to kind of go what what do we how do we put this together and how do we use this this new bunch of inspirational things some of which have come from her some of which will have come from the room you know into into the next draft and then we'll decide at that point what do we need now and and i think that's the way we do it i think there's a very popular uh, perhaps misconception that that i've got to workshop my show if i've got a show i've got to get a workshop and that is true to a degree but 
But you also have to ask yourself, what do I want to achieve in this workshop? It's no good having 10 actors for two weeks if you don't know what you need from your workshop. So I think, uh, you know, we always challenge the, the writer from, from the onset to go, what, what do you need right now? What do you think you want to discover? Is, it, is this a two-hander? Is it a four-hander? Is it an ensemble? How do the BVs that you hear on the demos work? What might, you know, let's answer some of these questions in this workshop. That might only take two days. It might be a two-day, four-day workshop that you can answer loads of stuff that then helps you write to the next stage. And then you might want your big cast or your fully resourced mic'd up version but we did this Wish for this nobody a hundred piece yet it will have a hundred people in it yet <laughs> <laughs> okay we're out <laughs> <laughs> so which creative team members did you have on board for this um this iteration a, a director in the room presumably yeah i mean it, again it, it what are you trying to achieve so with this we wanted somebody to interrogate the text a little bit maybe push charlie's sort of um comfort zone and go, I've got it to here and I'm happy with it here and just got to, you know, chip away at that sort of world of safety. Not not to, because any of it's wrong, but just to go, well, how, you know, how do we enhance yeah. this? How do we put some more air into it that gives you a little bit more chance to flow? And I think, so we did that. We brought in a director um, and a musical director for this, um, but it wasn't for any outcome. I think that's what's also really important about workshops is the outcome is for you, not not to get money for it or to show it to producers or to find a venue that's a different that's a presentation or a I think showcase that's what i found really helpful from mm. this workshop is that it wasn't we didn't have that pressure of like because every workshop i've been in before this has just been like right we've got four days to prep for a sharing everybody has to be perfect mm. and it's like there was no pressure with this it was really and this was like the first workshop i've ever been in where we actually interrogated the text and tore it apart and it wasn't just let's prep for the performance which was just so helpful mm. because we just had the time and the space to be like what if we just like what if we really expanded on this moment and actually there were so many times when we just ad-libbed a scene so like we'd just be like what would happen if this were to happen you just just go just play and so i just have my thing on dictaphone and just be recording what happened and then i'd go away and think about what the actors had done and they did such a great job the two of them and i'd sort of like take that and that would inspire me to go away and actually write a proper version of that but it was just like i think it was really great for them but it was really great for me as well because it just like it just freed up the possibilities of what the show could be and where it could go and i just found that so useful that it, we weren't prepping for any sort of performance or sharing because i mean i think i think you'd agree that it's just it's too early yeah anyway and yeah, it's, it's just not helpful early. for the process and i don't think anyone really benefits you no. know you're all you're really doing is is wasting what are probably valuable resources mm. to to get you know something for perhaps half a dozen people that are, are actually going to be able to do anything with it at that point. So, so we, we kind of felt we, we wanted to hear it out loud in other people's voices. That was us as, you know, development producers, that was our thing. So that, but that could be done, you know, whether it's off book, on book, staged, unstaged, didn't matter to us. I think the key thing, you know, for, for Charlie and, and for Dean, who we brought in to direct it, was just you know playtime give yourself some playtime do that how you do it what is your process do that you know and that's okay and I think 
but also as as actors you know you get a chance to kind of actually contribute something yeah. and you and you can you can go like this this feels weird to me that I say that you know or this moment here I don't really know what I'm supposed to do and that's really important stuff whereas if you're in a rehearsal room you gloss over those things you go well just just move on yeah we'll sort that out later you know and and the writer sits in the corner going I don't that doesn't feel right you know so I think that what what this does for us is just gives you a a, a playing field for a bit until you're at the point where you go okay I think we've got something now where we need to actually do it properly or do it do it you know in 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 a slightly more enhanced way than than you know sitting around in a, in a circle but but I think we got we as producers got so much out of that as well you know irrespective of all the great stuff that, that Charlie's just said you know you you kind of you can start talking about it to people in a different way you kind of start seeing where it might sit in the landscape of musicals and partners and and who might be interested in this sort of work you know and that helps so you're sort of building all of these building blocks along the way um that, that are basically your toolkit to sell the show in the future i think this is a good moment to listen to the second song which is turn the page should we have a listen
Talking of turning the page, give us a little bit of context. How does that song fit into the show? Um, so Turn the Page comes at a point where wish, uh, Bruno has, basically, he only wants the camera. He, bu- he, he buys the book because it has the camera. He thinks the camera will be uh, interesting, maybe. He buys the camera, camera doesn't work for him. So he's like, rubbish. Opens the book, reads the fact that this, this girl is basically asking him to go on a journey around the world to fill some random things for her. And he's like, nope. And so meanwhile, he's got this like this vision of her who then starts talking to him. And he's like, are you not? gonna read on he's like no i didn't sign up for this i just wanted the camera which is rubbish anyway and you're not even real so shut up and (laughs) (laughs) and that's where she then has to in true musical theater form convince him to do it with the song basically saying like but just imagine what you could do if you did take it on and basically the thing that hooks him in is the fact that like you think you're broken maybe this might help you and so he's like okay and so very tentatively he turns the page. What's the future look like? I appreciate maybe it's unknown, but what's what are the ambitions? What are the hopes? Our, our approach is always let's get the material to the place where you go. You could put it on in a black box with no frills and we'd care. When it's at that point, you can then kind of go, OK, where does this sit in in a theatre landscape? Who Whose audience would this work for? And you know, who are we trying to aim it at demographically and stuff like that. And that, that sort of comes after you feel you've got the thing. At the same time, we have lots of conversations where we sow seeds and we offer the odd track and we kind of go, you might like this one, you know, all really just sowing seeds for the future um, with partners, other producers, investors, whoever it might be, um, you know, just a little bit at a time. And then I think you you know a bit like the show you sort of you you build this jigsaw of of pieces together that that then becomes your next step um or your production outcome whatever you want to call it and i think for us we're very firmly in development at the moment we're not we're not talking about a production yet though i think you know charlie's first draft is where a lot of others third fourth fifth drafts are so i think and that's probably because she's written other shows and got there quicker then you know it's not her first musical which i think also helps so so we're nicely along the developmental journey i think already um even though you know it was our first workshop with charlie i think there's it feels like we're a good a good bit ahead of you know having just picked it up if that makes sense so i think you know we we literally haven't spoken since the workshop finished uh, 10 days ago or whatever so we're uh, we'll we'll catch up properly on next steps and and rewrites and stuff that Charlie's already doing and, you know. But it is important, I think, that we are aligned on that journey. And I think that's a really important thing to say because, you know, producers can have bold ideas or, you know, but if they don't align to what the writer instinctively feels or equally vice versa, you know, that's a problem. And I think, you know, we we would say to Charlie, you know, maybe it sort of fits in this world or that world. And, you know, we might start plodding along towards what we think is that destination together if we're all happy and then then realize actually no it's more here you know uh, i mean if you take six as a good example you know if you told me it would be playing to two and a half thousand people in los angeles when we first picked that show up i would have just said you are bonkers <laughs> you know we started it a little show at the arts and so you don't quite know what where the journey is going to take you or what how the show itself will manifest in the long run so i think you know we we kind of do a little bit a day at a time and see see where it leads us Serendipity. But we're excited. Serendipity plays a big role, doesn't Huge. it? 
what's happening and when in in the world and in and in theater as well where's yeah. booked who's booked yeah i mean from our perspective you know uh, right place right time or wrong place wrong time whichever way you look at it you know there's there's so many things that have come to pass because of a random meeting with somebody or you had a coffee and they're like oh well, i've got this you know Perfect Pitch as an organisation started because of a random conversation that someone said, I've got two weeks of theatre space if you want it. And we were kind of like, yeah, we'll do something in there for a new musicals. Didn't know what it was. And we ended up putting on a showcase of new work. And so that serendipity is a huge, and I'm a big believer in that. And this this sort of story is probably why it resonates. You know, I think <laughs> it is absolutely. But but I think we all want to believe in that in some ways, you know, in, in fate and, you know what will be will be and all of those kind of nice you know feelings that we have about life i think there's there's an absolute reality to this story in that it also feels like you know for people listening a really good takeaway is keep knocking on doors and keep being a part of the community you can, like networking is so important about you know creating relationships and opportunities you never know what may be around the corner so um don't stop asking. I guess the worst that can happen is is you get a no, but then you just move on, you ask again, and you try something different. I think certainly for a lot of new writers where I've certainly felt in the past that it's just like you think it's a completely closed shop and there's just no way in. It's like there is a way in. There is always a way in. If you just keep trying, like I promise there's a way in. Yeah, take a risk that, you know, that submission opportunities, submissions to be on the podcast, submissions to work with Perfect Pitch, other opportunities in the UK, you know, just keep putting yourself out there. I think I think also just find the right fit, you know, like yeah, there's the, the, the analogy of, you know, throw enough mud at the wall, something will stick. Uh, that's true to a degree, but kind of try and throw it in the right direction and then at least you, you've got more chance of it sticking because I think you know look at the work people do and look at the previous shows they've produced or developed or or directed or whoever you're looking to get on board for your project and I think and I think that's that's clearly what happened here is you know that Charlie and John had done their homework and went this should work for them if what they say about what they're interested in <laughs> is true you know and and it absolutely did and and I think there was another layer to it that perhaps even they didn't realize you know the, the serendipitous kind of world that that I love to inhabit you know I sort of you know think this played a part into it as well but but at the end of the day it's really good and I think that's you know and I'm talking about the quality of the writing and that has to be at the front of, of every decision it can be the best idea in the world but if it doesn't deliver feelings or emotions or 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 you know a story you want to hear the end of then you're in trouble so but this delivers on all of that so clearly we just need to keep an eye out for the new musical entitled wishlist and whatever future iteration it may come across our computers our lives a theater near you just need to keep our eyes out Making a Musical is produced and hosted by Alex Jackson and Kiki Stevenson for The Other Palace. If you've enjoyed this episode, follow and rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps us share new British musical theatre with audiences all around the world. You can submit your new musical to be featured on the podcast at theotherpalace.co.uk. That's it from us. Join us next time for more Making, Making a, a musical, musical, the future of British, British musical, musical theatre. theatre.